T-minus 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour, liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. Okay, engine stop. Okay, engine stop. Okay, engine stop. My guest today on Cosmic Perspective Radio is former NASA astronaut, NASA administrator, and founder of the Charles F. Bolden Group, Charles Bolden. Mr. Bolden, thanks for joining us for Black History Month on WPKN and Cosmic Perspective Radio today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Uh, looking forward to the discussions today. As a youth, I understand that you were interested in the space program. No, I wasn't. I was one that the farthest from my interest was the space program, other than the fact that my two favorite characters on Saturday, when we were allowed to go to the local theater in Columbia, South Carolina, was uh, Buck Rogers. If that counts, then yes, I, I was infatuated by space, but I was always uh, really excited to see Buck Rogers go walk out to his spacecraft, walk aboard as if he were getting on a train or a bus, fly off to Mars and come back all in the same day. I didn't know any better. That was the extent of my interest in the space program. Interest in terms of participating was not generated until I met Dr. Ron McNair while I was a test pilot and he was finishing up his first year of candidacy in the astronaut program. I watched the trailers, of course, from the movie, The Space Race. kind of hints that you were interested in the space program by looking at the trailer, so I apologize. Uh, no, 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 no. It's, and I think that's a fair assumption because I talk about throughout, I talk about growing up in South Carolina and following the space program. And, but at the time, there were other much more important things to me, like uh, civil rights and uh, the war in Vietnam and other stuff like that. So when I went to Vietnam in uh, 1973, we had already left the moon for the last time, but that was... The, among the farthest things from my mind because I was on my way to go participate in the Vietnam conflict and the civil rights battle was still raging in the streets of, of America. What was it like growing up as a Black American in, in the South? Um, it was interesting in one perspective, and it, and it depends on who you talk to. In my particular case, my mom and dad were educators, so we had some advantages that other kids did not have. My mother was in an organization called Jack and Jill which was a mother's organization, black mothers put together so that their kids would have an opportunity to participate in social 
activities that they might not otherwise be able to participate in. For example, we had cotillions and botillions and things like that. And you only found that in the white community. When I was growing up, we were able to visit the local museum because our mothers would go and work with the folk in the museum and get a night where black students could come to visit the art museum or another museum in Columbia. And we had the um, very definitive signs about where you could and couldn't go, like white-only fountains and white-only bathrooms. So you grew up knowing what your limits were, if you will. So for me, it was a, a lot easier than it was for my kids growing up. They grew up mostly in Houston, Texas, and there were no signs. So there were places they weren't wanted, but they didn't know it because there was no, there was no obvious signs. I knew where I wasn't wanted because the sign said, don't come here. So for me, it was a little bit easier than it was for my kids growing up. That's very interesting that you uh, look at it that way. It's kind of a, I don't know, I'm going to say it's kind of a sad thing. Sad that the signs were there. I'm just a few years younger than you. I grew up in the same era, and uh, it was very compelling what happened during that time. Yeah. And to think that it was easier for you uh, is pretty interesting, because that tells me that there's still this silent thing going on. It, it may never end. And it, and it wasn't sad for me. It was sad for the people who put the signs up. As I looked at them and, and the way that they allowed hatred to overwhelm them and overcome them and to watch them do the kinds of things that they did to, to fellow human beings, I felt sorry for them. I was fine. Um, you know, my, my life was good. I had great teachers. My schools were not as good as the white schools in terms of facilities and books and laboratories and the like, but we had much better teachers than they had in the white schools. My Latin teacher in high school was the same lady, Mary Ray Saxon Jackson, who had taught my father Latin when he went through Booker T. Washington High School back in the 30s. So we had very, very competent, capable, motivated teachers who uh, helped us get through the segregated, through the Jim Crow era, uh, understanding that we could do anything we wanted to do as long as we didn't let other people define us. And, uh, and they taught us how to keep going until you found a way to, to get somewhere. And sometimes it meant you left the South. You know, you may have to go to school in the North or somewhere else if you wanted to get a particular kind of education. You were certainly fortunate to receive a great education, but not just in the South, but all over the country, even in the North, the opportunities were not equal for Black Americans. When you were young, all the astronauts were white. It's hard to, not to talk about uh, Dwight. Uh, yeah. And of course, uh, this, the, this movie is out, the uh, National Geographic special, The Space Race, and of course, about several Black Americans that had a lot to do with the space race and U.S. space program. But of course, Ed Dwight was supposed to be the first Black astronaut. What happened? Can you tell us what happened? Um, I can tell you what I have been told happened because Ed Dwight is a good friend. And so I have talked to him and, and listened to his story. And it is typical of everything. You Every story has two sides. So if you talk to people in NASA and the Air Force, they're not exactly sure what happened because in their chronicled history, Ed was never nominated to be an astronaut and Ed was never competitive to be an astronaut. The folk out at Edwards Air Force Base, all they knew was they had gotten this black guy who um, had been sent by President Kennedy to become an astronaut. So they didn't know what to do with him, kind of. As Ed was led to believe Chuck Yeager, who was the commandant of the Air Force test pilot school at the time, strongly objected to his being there and uh, made it pretty clear to him that 
you know, unless somebody made him do it, he was not going to be an astronaut. He may graduate from the test pilot school, but the Air Force was not planning to send him to be an astronaut. I don't know if you're as old as I am, but if you remember the press conference with the class, the astronaut class in which Ed was expected to be a member, NASA said, no, we, they answered directly, no, we never had a black applicant that we considered. So not sure what happened. That, that's the Air Force's problem. And the Air Force says, no, we, we never had a black astronaut either. So th that's just kind of the way it happened. I happened to have followed Ed because back when I was growing up, our newspapers were the, the Baltimore Sun and our magazines were Jet and Ebony. So when Ed was on the cover of Jet and Ebony, I was in high school. And so I followed him with some interest, not because I had a desire to be an astronaut, because as you said, there were no astronauts at the time who looked like me. And so that wasn't something that, that I had any intention of becoming or any, any desire to become. I had already learned about the Naval Academy when I was 12 years old, when I was in seventh grade. And so my focus for post high school was getting into the Naval Academy. I knew that was gonna be tough because I had to get a congressional appointment. And I knew that the South Carolina delegation had said, uh, not directly to me, but they had made it very clear that they had no intention of appointing a black to go to any service academy. But I still persisted. And um, until my senior year, when they, they made it very clear, no, we are not going to appoint you or any other black to a service academy. And so my hope became Vice President Lyndon Johnson. But in uh, November of my senior year in high school, November 22nd, President Kennedy was assassinated. And at that time, my dream of going to the Naval Academy almost disappeared because I, I recognized the fact that he was the sole surviving person who could give me an appointment to the Naval Academy as the vice president. I was not eligible for a presidential appointment. So I, um, my mom asked me what I was going to do. She asked me if I was going to give up. And I told her, mm, I didn't. I don't know what to do. She said, well, figure it out. <laughs> she was my high, my middle school librarian and my dad was my high school football coach. So they just did the typical thing they did as, as teachers, go figure it out. And I pulled out a typewriter and typed out a letter to President Johnson and reminded him that I had been writing him and that I really, I really, really, really wanted to go to the Naval Academy and I would appreciate anything he could do to help. Never heard from him, but within weeks, I got a visit from a Navy recruiter at my house. And within a couple of months of that, President Johnson sent a, a retired federal judge, Judge Bennett from Washington, D.C., around the country to try to find and recruit qualified young men of color at the time. Women were not allowed yet to go to the service academies. And I ended up getting an appointment from Congressman William Dawson in Chicago, Illinois. So that's how I got to the Naval Academy. And that's why I didn't have a lot of time to think about going to the space program. It just goes to show what somebody can do when the odds are against them and uh, and not to give up. Yeah. I wanted to talk also about some of the other Black astronauts. And it was more than 20 years later that Guy Bluford became the first Black American astronaut. I, it's kind of a silly question, but why do you think it took so long, 20 years? I know these things kind of take time. but Yeah. Well, it actually wasn't 20 years before we had a candidate. Not very long after Ed Dwight, we had a young Air Force pilot, and my age is showing here because I'm drawing a blank, but uh, he was a very good student. In fact, he was an instructor pilot at Edwards, and he had been, he had already been selected for the MOLE program, the Manned Orbiting Laboratory Program. Uh, so a U.S. Department of Defense human spaceflight program where they were going to use military astronauts 
to serve as human satellites. Satellites hadn't quite taken off yet. And so they were training this cadre of military pilots to go to space and to take pictures and to observe and do what satellites. He was flying a training mission out at Edwards in an F-104 as the instructor and the student in the front seat they were doing a simulated uh, dive, very similar to the way we used to approach in the space shuttle. And uh, at the pull-up point, the student began the pull-up a little bit late. And so the call was made by the instructor to get out, get out, get out. The student ejected and, and lived. He never got out and he died in the crash. So he was the second potential black astronaut. Uh, Bob Lawrence was his name. And so he died in a training accident in preparation to go to space. But then it took until Guy Bluford flew in 1983 aboard STS-8. And that's because there was no push uh, to recruit blacks until Nichelle Nichols went to NASA. She was, not, she was not sought after by NASA, but she went to NASA, uh, Lieutenant O'Hura did, and said, you guys need help. And I wanna travel the country and help you because you, you can't continue to operate this way. And NASA did partner with Nichelle Nichols and she became the attraction for people like Ron McNair, uh, guy, Fred Gregory says when he saw Nichelle Nichols, he was all in. Uh, I, the only black of that era that was not moved by Nichelle Nichols was Mae Jemison. She said she was self-motivated. And so after medical school and doing a stint with the Peace Corps, she applied to NASA and was accepted and became the first black woman uh, to come in and then the first black woman to fly. Amazing what Nichelle Nichols did for the space program and Black Americans. Did she recruit you as well? I, I knew of Nichelle Nichols, but I didn't have an interest in the space program yet. By that time, I had gone to the Naval Academy. The two things I was not going to do. So you'll see my life goes through lots of swings here. Things happen to me that I never thought about or never planned. So I went to the Naval Academy. My first intent was to become a, a frogman, a, what is today a SEAL, Navy SEAL. And I found out that at that time, academy graduates were not allowed to go into the UDT, into underwater demolition teams, because it was a restricted duty. And the uh, academy graduates went into broad general category duties. The UDT picked their own from their own. You know, They grew their own candidates to be officers. So when I found that out, I was kind of miffed for my most of my time at the Naval Academy. The good thing was my very first company officer was a young Marine infantry officer by the name of Major John Riley Love, who after graduation became a lifelong friend of mine. We were friends until his death. But um, Major Love was, um, he was an unbelievable leader. He was like my dad. He was tough, but eminently fair. I was only with him my plebe year at the Naval Academy. And then he finished his three-year tour and went back to the operating forces of the Marine Corps where he stayed until he retired. But in my final year, my senior year, I looked back and I said, you know, I, I got to make up my mind. I've got to do something. And I know I told everybody when I came here, two things I was not going to do was go in the Marine Corps and fly airplanes. Those were the only two things I knew. And uh, I changed my mind. I was so impressed with Major Love that I not only said I want to go in the Marine Corps, but I said I want to go in the Marine Corps and become an infantry officer. The Tet Offensive had just occurred the year before. The life expectancy of a Marine Corps second lieutenant was expressed in months, if not weeks. My family was really not happy. My dad cried like a baby. I was engaged to be married. My wife, soon to be, cried like a baby. And everybody protested, but I said, nope, this is what I'm going to do. And I accepted my commission in the Marine Corps with the intent of becoming an infantry officer. 
uh, going through the six months of the basic school, my last three days, the three-day war, which was your graduation exercise, was end of November, first day of December. It was cold, snowy, ice, and I, I hate the cold. And I stayed awake for 72 hours for three days. I felt if I lay down and put my head on the ground, I'd die. And so I volunteered for fire watches and did everything. And when I came back in from the field exercise, I walked into my company officer and I said, hey, I, I changed my mind. I knew I said, I, I wanna be an infantry officer, but I, I can't do that. I don't wanna do that. Can I get my aviation guarantee back? Because I'd done well enough at the Naval Academy to get an aviation option, which I did not intend to use. And I had turned it in, but then I walked back in and he, he kind of smiled. He said, I'm glad to see you come to your senses. And I, I took my aviation option and Jackie and I went off to Pensacola and I fell in love with flying the first time I got in an airplane. And everything after that was one progression of after another, you know, of finding things I wanted to do. The a meteorology instructor talked all the time about the A6 intruder, the America's only, in fact, to this day, the only true all-weather attack aircraft that anybody has ever built. And I, I was infatuated by the airplane and its mission. So I decided I wanted to be an, a, an A6 pilot. I knew that I had to perform well in order to get my first choice. So I was number one in my class all the way through flight school. So I got my pick and I picked the A6 when I came out of flight school. When I was in advanced jet training down in Kingsville, Texas, one of my instructors was another Marine who um, was a test pilot. And every time we flew, he talked about the challenge of a test pilot. It wasn't a lot of fun, you know, the, the kind of fun that people that you see in the movies, no scarf hanging out the, out the, the, the canopy and all that. It was intense and focused and very precise. It demanded precise flying. And that was, that was something that just appealed to me. I, I thought, okay, that's what I wanna do. So when I graduated from flight school and got my wings and I went to my first squadron, um, I began applying immediately to test pilot school, uh, not to the astronaut program. I just, I just wanted to be a test pilot. And ironically, the year that I was accepted for test pilot school, 1978, and I began my training, NASA selected the first group of people who became the space shuttle astronauts. And in that group were the first three people of color, Ron McNair, Fred Gregory, Guy Bluford, and the first six women, to include Sally Ride. And so I knew that now there were people who looked like me in the space program, but I was really focused on getting through test pilot school and becoming a test pilot and spending the rest of my life being a test pilot. Ron McNair came to Pax River with um, a group of his classmates from the astronaut program who had been through test pilots school at Pax River and had been test pilots there. And they came back for a reunion and that was when I met Ron and we talked the whole weekend and uh, before he left to go back to Houston, he asked me if I was going to apply for the space program. And I told him, not on your life. And he looked at me real strange. He said, why not? I said, Ron, they'd never pick me. You know, I'm not going to waste my time. They'd never pick me. And he, he looked me in the eye and he said, you know, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. He said, how do you know if you don't ask? And what it did was it embarrassed me more than anything because my mom and dad, who were teachers, had always taught my brother and me that we could do anything we wanted to do as long as we were willing to study hard and work hard and not be afraid of failure. Never let anybody else define us or tell us who we were. And when Ron went back to Houston, I, I went home and told my wife that I didn't stand a snowball's chance in hell of being selected, but I had to apply because I didn't want to go through life looking back saying what, what if I had done it. 
And I did apply. I got invited to come to Houston to interview. I was down there for a week. I came back and I told Jackie it was it was unbelievable. And I said, you know, you would love it if we were able to go down there, but we don't stand a chance. I mean, the, the brilliance of, of the other 19 people in my interview group was just unbelievable. There were PhDs and other test pilots and everything. And I just said, no, there's no way in the world I'm gonna be picked. And several months later, I got a call from NASA asking if I still wanted to be an astronaut. And I said, sure. And uh, so that's the way we ended up defaulting into the astronaut program, trying to follow Ron and recover from his embarrassing me. So you were embarrassed into becoming a, an astronaut. I was, I was embarrassed into becoming an astronaut. Well, you know, it's interesting that um, I've interviewed even Apollo astronauts and several shuttle astronauts. And, and of course, the Apollo astronauts, they weren't interested in being an astronaut. There weren't astronauts around at the time when they were That's, kids. Yep. <laughs> right? but, but there was Buck Rogers, and a lot of them went into the military. And I even uh, recall I interviewed somebody about Ron Evans. I never spoke to him. He was the last uh, command module pilot on Apollo 17. He had no interest in being a pilot. He was an engineer. He loved it. You know, so it's interesting to listen how, you know, your life changes a little bit. You get into some things and, yeah. and how. I mean, an opportunity opens and you yeah. think about it and you say, well, what the heck? You know, I, I'll try that. Well, and what a wonderful opportunity. You flew with four space shuttle missions. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of them was I, incredible. You were the pilot to release the Hubble Space Telescope. Can you tell us some of the memorable things during those missions? Oh. Yeah. The most memorable things about every mission are the same in their um, the activation of two senses in the, in the human body. One of them is the sense of sight. Uh, seeing this planet from that vantage point, it changes your whole perspective about everything, about the planet, about life. I got this feeling, you know, with Hubble, we were higher than anyone had ever been on a circular orbit of Earth, not going to the moon. And although we didn't see the whole ball like the Apollo astronauts had an opportunity to do, you saw this, the magnificence of Earth, this thin blue line between space and the planet itself, and recognizing that that includes the only 10,000 feet of atmosphere that has enough oxygen to sustain life. And you realize how fragile we are as a species. People talk about Earth being fragile and all this stuff. Earth's been around for billions of years, and it's not going anywhere. We can make it such that we can't survive here because we depend on such rare commodities on the planet and we keep trying to destroy them in spite of ourselves so your perspective changes the views are unlike anything you've ever seen taken by any camera i uh, haven't seen a camera yet that produces an, an image that compares with what you see with the human eye and the second thing is the sense of feel where because gravity is overcome you're still in a gravity environment but you're going so fast that centrifugal force pulls against gravity and kind of they equal each other out at the altitude you happen to be in the speed you're going. So you float, uh, at least that's the sensation you get. You're actually constantly trying to fall back to earth, but centrifugal force won't let it happen. And so we float. And that is an absolutely incredible feeling because you find that a lot of the stuff you learned in, in your science classes, Newton's laws, for example, other kinds of physical principles you get to play with. You know, you're floating, and so you can take something and turn it loose gently, and it sits right there just like Sir Isaac Newton said, a body at rest stays at rest unless otherwise acted upon by an outside force. You go up to a keyboard, and if you don't grab something or hook your, you know, your pinky fingers into little loops on the keyboard, you press the first key, and you're going back across the cabin. So you get to see 
physical laws in action with you. And, it, and, it, and that is just incredible. So those are the two senses that I say remain memorable to everybody. I will say though, my final flight was the first joint Russian-American mission where we had two Russian cosmonauts who trained with us and one, Sergei Krikalov, who ended up flying with us. And just the experience of bringing them and their families along with about a hundred other Russians, uh, scientists, doctors, trainers, flight controllers, they brought a whole team of people over to support them. And, and they all lived in the US for almost two years training with us. And uh, I ended up flying with Sergei. I learned so much from him because he was a veteran space flyer. At the time, he had more time in space than anybody else. He had already been on uh, Mir twice, the Russian space station. And our flight, what was called the, the first flight in the shuttle Mir program, where we were evaluating whether or not we could work collaboratively with the Russians so that we could send some American astronauts over to fly on their space station. Our flight went swimmingly, if you want to call it that. Just the level of collaboration, the friendships that were formed and everything. And so I tell people, while I don't have a favorite mission, that's the one I cherish more than any others because of what we did that demonstrated that human beings, given a chance, working on a common mission, can and do get along. Um, we are dear friends to this day, both Sergei and Vladimir, who was his backup and, and ended up flying a year later. But uh, Sergei is the head guy for the Russian human spaceflight program today. And he was a, an invaluable asset to me while I was the NASA administrator, because anytime we had any questions at all about the Russian space program, we just picked up the phone and called him and we knew we were going to get a straight answer because, you know, we had lived and worked together for more than a year and trusted each other. So that's the one I cherish more than any of the others. I uh, had the pleasure to visit Vance Brand, who was a shuttle astronaut, of course. Yeah. Uh, and of course, had an anniversary of, of the uh, MMU, Bruce McCandless. He was the pilot during that flight. Yep. Uh, and I get to speak to him also about, of course, Apollo Soyuz. He's basically saying the same thing. The camaraderie, the, the feeling you get, two cultures getting together, the friendship. And of course, Tom Stafford as well. And, you know, he became very good friends with Alexi Lana. It's so good to see that we were at this point where we're, there's, there was this Cold War, and that's what drove the whole space program. And uh, now we're at the point where we're doing this for humanity, and I think that's yeah. a wonderful thing. It's not easy. It's a struggle because you've got a whole group of people, a whole class of, of, um, of professionals who are doing things that their government is not exactly. I mean, I think, I think the space station is a crown jewel to Putin. But collaborating with the Russian, with the Americans is something he could care less about. I'm not sure he understands what is going on and what's happening that allows him to crow about it because he's got people who are Russians just like him, but who understand the value of collaboration and, and international cooperation. I don't think about that much, but it's something we should all think about because of all the things that are going on in the world right now. And here we are still in harmony with each other on the space yep. station. I, I do think about it all the time, and I realize that that's why I say it's the mission I cherish more than anything, because none of us can claim to have been responsible for it, but we all can claim to have participated in it and to have had the privilege of being the commander of the mission, you know, responsible for the care and feeding of the crew and the vehicle. For me, it was just something I'll never, I'll never forget. And all because you're ashamed into doing this. I think that's <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, that, that's the other funny thing is, at the time, I was at NASA headquarters. I had finished my third flight. I was the assistant deputy administrator. So I was the deputy to the deputy. And um, 
my job was to go over to the Hill quite a bit and try to lobby for, well, we didn't, we weren't allowed to lobby, but to go over and try to convince Congress to support a space station. We were in the process of trying to develop an American space station after Skylab. And um, the administrator, Dan Golden, and a guy named George Abbey, who had hired me into NASA, they called me into the office one day and they said, hey, we want you to go back to Houston to fly again. And I said, great, because I hate it here. When can I leave? They said, well, um, you know, you got some stuff to do, but we'd like for you to get down there as soon as you can. And I said, oh, am I going to have an opportunity to command the the first servicing mission to Hubble, because that crew had not been named yet. And they said, oh, no, not going to do that because we've already selected the crew. And uh, it was it was a friend named Dick Covey who was commander of that mission. So I said, OK, what's left? They said, well, we've got two Russians. And, and as soon as they said two Russians, then my ears kind of went up because they said, we want you to go back and fly the first Russian-American mission. I said, forget it. I said, I'm a Marine and I trained all my life to kill those guys. And they probably did the same thing me. I don't want to fly with any damn Russian. And they looked at me and their eyes got big. And, and George Abbey said, look, they're already here in town. They're going to have dinner tonight with friends of yours, John David and Bartow and his wife. Why don't you go out, have dinner and talk a little bit and then come back in in the morning and let us know. And so I did. I went to dinner. Guy Gardner, who was in my astronaut class, Guy was, um, was out there and John David Bartow and his wife, Donna. And then Sergey and Vladimir were there when I got there and, and I arrived and we introduced around and we started talking and almost immediately the conversation went to our families and we all had young kids. So Sergey had a daughter who was four years old, Olga. Vladimir had an eight-year-old son, Uri, and Marina was his 16, 17, maybe 18-year-old daughter who had come ahead and had already enrolled in uh, San Jacinto Junior College in Houston because she wanted to be an international business person. She spoke fluent English. Nobody else in her family spoke English. Sergei spoke fluent English. Nobody else in his family spoke English. So he was the, Sergei was the interpreter for the evening. And it was just unbelievable because we talked about the kind of world we wanted to leave our kids and how we felt, you know, we had an opportunity to, to make a difference. And by the time the evening was over, I was really excited about the prospect of being able to work and train with these guys and then to fly with one of them. And so I went back in the next morning and said, okay, I, I was wrong. I, I, I give up. I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I said, put me in coach. It again, goes to show that uh, once we uh, really know who we really are and we're all the same. And as, as I'm sure you saw when you were in space, then you looked back at the earth, there were no borders. Um, no boundaries. No, no boundaries. Exactly. Absolutely. But going back to this feeling guilty, you were appointed by President Obama as the first NASA Black American administrator. And of course, he was the first and only Black American president. How cool is that? I mean, that, that, that was cool. <laughs> that, that was really cool. And it was, you know, it was interesting because I had an opportunity to go to Washington three times in connection with it. And only the last time did I know that it had anything at all to do with being the NASA administrator. The first time I went up and spent half a day with Dr. John Holdren, the president's science advisor, the head of OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. And we, we talked about NASA in general, but no talk about administrator or anything. And so he found out that there were some things that NASA did that I didn't like, some things that, that they were planning to do, like a National Space Council that I was deathly opposed to, and I still am, to be quite honest. So we had a very candid conversation. I went back home, and a couple of weeks later, they called and said, hey, can you come back again? And I asked them, what what for they said we can't tell you 
I said, well, I'm not coming all the way to Washington, D.C. on my dime for something. I don't know what it is. I did that once. And they said, well, the president would just like to talk to you for a little while. And I told my wife and she said, don't go. I said, what do you mean? Don't go. I said, I got to meet Obama. She said, he's going to ask you to do something and you don't know how to say no. And I said, I promise I won't say yes to anything. And so she gave me permission to go. I went back and I ended up having to spend the night because he had a bad day with, of all people, Benjamin Netanyahu. They were in conference that afternoon and it went well into the night. And so they asked me if I could stay overnight and come back and see him the next morning, which I did. And we only spent about 25 minutes together. He did most of the talking. It was mesmerizing, you know, just listening to him and his vision and everything else. He talked a lot about NASA, but didn't talk anything at all about my working there or my doing anything. We just kind of exchanged some thoughts about where it was headed. He made it very clear he was an explorer and he wanted he wanted us to get out of low Earth orbit, you know, let the commercial sector do that and go back. Um, he didn't emphasize the moon like everybody else did. He wanted us to go to Mars. And so he and I were in sync there because I am a big Mars person. And uh, so when he finished, he told me, thanks very much for coming in. And I went home and didn't hear anything for about a month or more. And then I got another call saying, hey, can you come back to DC again? I said, for what? And they said, well, the president wants to nominate you to be the NASA administrator. And we need to have you here for a few weeks to do all the prep and going to the Hill and meeting the chairs and ranking members and all that. And I I said, well, I can't answer right now. I got to talk to my family. And I did that that night. We all decided, okay, what the heck? I may as well go back and take a chance. And I went back and, and went through my confirmation hearing my deputy, Lori Garver, and I were, we were interviewed that afternoon. We were voted by voice vote out of committee. And that night we were unanimously approved by voice vote on the floor of the Senate. And I tell people we were the last civil confirmation process in the Obama administration. That was July of 2009. And he went all the way to 2017. And every hearing after that for confirmation, particularly judges and everything else, were just brutal. But ours was like a love fest, you know, so I even had uh, almost every member of the South Carolina delegation, most of whom did not know me, come in and vouch for me in the hearing. They just, Lindsey Graham and everybody else wanted to have their chance endorsing the fellow South Carolinian to be the NASA administrator. So. And just amazing how it all fell into place. Oh, yeah. But going back to your original statement, working for him was way more than I ever imagined it would be. He and Mrs. Obama were just unbelievably wonderful people. Talk about lady and gentleman. Uh, they had it in spades. He was brilliant. And every time there was something that had to do anything with science or technology or engineering, I got an invitation, like all the other heads of STEM-related agencies, we got an invitation to come. And so we were there for almost everything that was done in the White House for eight years that had to do with STEM or STEM education or, or science and technology. He was a huge supporter. And even if we disagreed on something, you know, I recognize the fact that, hey, he's making the final decision and I can, I can go do that, make it happen. But it was, just, it was just fun working for him the entire time. I wasn't very good the first two years. I tell people I sucked. I, I was just horrible. I didn't know anything about politics. I had never been in the Pentagon in 34 years in the Marine Corps. So I didn't even have the advantage of having worked the halls of the Pentagon and gone back and forth to the Hill. So everything for me was a new experience.
I could imagine just having no experience like that. And here you are in front of the Senate subcommittee and they're asking you all these questions. Oh yeah. It was frequently funny because I, I had to learn over time that there were certain things that you just should not say. And, and I remember getting in a tiff with Congressman Smith from Texas. He was the, the chairman of the House Subcommittee on Space Science and Technology. And he said some things that were just out and out wrong. And they love to castigate government employees. And so I got angry and I, I spoke back and I said, you know, I don't appreciate you all castigating my employees. They are some of the best people in this country. And I said, I'm just not going to tolerate that. And I said, and, and the other thing is you, your data is wrong. I'm not sure who told you that, but that's not accurate. When the hearing was over, we were in the car going back in my legislative affairs head, a guy named Seth, he said, boss, that was really good, your response and everything else. He said, but don't do that again. <laughs> he said, you were absolutely right, but you were dead wrong in taking them on. He said, they have the final say. And he said, you just don't want to piss them off. So he said, enjoy that you did it this time and, and you seem to have gotten away with it, but don't ever do that again. <laughs> Control your temper. <laughs> Charlie, I, I appreciate you being with us today and sharing these experiences uh, is there anything else that we didn't discuss about Black History Month that you'd like to talk about? There are two movies that were made this past year that are perfect for Black History Month, but they're perfect for American History Month or American History Year. One of them was done by NASA called The Color of Space, and it was done mostly down at the Johnson Space Center. I think it was the idea of the center director down there uh, to do it, but it talks about Blacks in the space program leading up to today, but it features a lot of contemporary Blacks that nobody's ever heard of. And it, it just talks about how there is no color in space. It's just a whole bunch of people bonding together on a common mission and getting the job done. And then the space race, I thought, was absolutely phenomenal. And the, the job that Leland Melvin, who was a former astronaut, Leland is one of the executive producers and the folk from National Geographic, I, I thought it was mesmerizing, you know, and um, the two directors, it just, just phenomenal. Lisa and, and Diego, it was well done. And I, I hope everybody in the world gets to see it because it is a story about American history. I only got a chance to watch the first half hour of it. It was getting great for the interview. Um, it's incredibly compelling. It is. You know, I consider myself incredibly honored to have had an opportunity to be in it. Thank you so much for being with us today. I, I got to say that I met you a few times, but I got a chance to actually ask you two questions. I was at the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got this interview, right? Uh, so I'm at the uh, transfer of the space shuttles, Enterprise and, and Discovery at the Uvarhazi. And yes. they, let, they let the media come in. Of course, I'm with the radio station. That was a volunteer thing I was doing. And I got to ask you and John Glenn some questions and some other people. And I remember they let us have two questions. Like, oh, two questions. What are the what are the two questions I'm gonna ask? Well, I gotta tell you, I don't remember the first one. <laughs> I was like kind of starstruck, kind of, and, but I do remember the second one, and that was, would you be interested in being a guest on my NASA volunteer radio show? And you said yes. So they say that all good things take time. Um, and I gotta really appreciate it. It's been a real honor to really have you here today. No, well, thank you very much, and I enjoyed it. I look forward to to working with you again sometime. You take care. You as well. Thanks so much for everything. All take right, care. Bye bye. Bye. Many thanks to Mark Pistana for making this interview possible. Cosmic Perspective Radio is an Andy Poneros production.